This is the most important election in the history of our country. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. Hi, my name is Thomas Junot. I am an associate professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa and the chair of the National Security Policy Network here at the Center for International Policy Studies, or SIPS. I'm very happy to host today another episode of the SIPS series of podcasts on the international impact of the U.S. election. Today we focus on the Middle East and mostly on the Persian Gulf. We have two great guests to help us do that, two of my favorite Middle East experts, Dina Esfandiari first is a fellow at the Century Foundation, co-author of Triple Axis, Iran's Relations with Russia and China, and a prolific author on Iran and the Gulf region. And Farah Al-Muslimi is an associate fellow at Chatham House and the co-founder of the Sana'a Center for Strategic Studies, a think tank focused on Yemen, where I am a non-resident fellow. Farah and Dina, thanks for being with us. So... Um, to begin, Dina, uh, how do you expect the election to affect relations between the U.S. and Iran? How would a second Trump term differ from a Biden presidency, in your view? So, um, obviously, the, it'll depend on who wins. That's the first thing to say. Um, I think that if we end up with a second term Trump president, interestingly, it's both good and bad for Iran. It will be good because the Iranians know that negotiating with the Trump administration is not going to be like negotiating with the Biden administration. They are kind of following U.S. politics a lot closer now, and they have an understanding of the fact that the Biden administration and foreign policy team is shaping up to be a pretty strong one, with a lot of people from the Obama administration in it as well. And so they know that it won't be an easy road. It might be an administration that's more willing to negotiate and more willing to compromise with the Iranians, which would be an upside. Um, but it will be a tough negotiation because the Biden administration is going to have to appear a lot tougher on Iran than a Trump administration for, for a domestic audience. So the Iranians aren't quite sure where they sit right now. They don't know if what they prefer is a Biden administration or a Trump administration. I think the main takeaway is that if Trump is going to do what he did with North Korea, then I think the Iranians would welcome a, a Trump administration that is going to negotiate with them in that manner. But if it's going to be more foot dragging, uh, more requests for photo ops, um, and more pressure like it has done so far, I think the Iranians would much rather end up with the Biden administration um, after November. Okay, that's, uh, that's an, interesting, uh, an interesting take. Farah, um, on your side, uh, what about U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's intervention in Yemen? How do you expect that to evolve depending on who wins in November? I guess first, let me, uh, first thank you both um, for this and for having me, Tom. Um, but let me, I, I, I want to score a point. I think the question we're asking right now about the impact of a possible U.S. administration in, in the region overall, on Yemen, in Saudi, in Iran, I think it's always, uh, I am recently a bit more cautious of overstating the U.S. influence on anything in the world. Whether, and I think we have over, um, overthought this increased U.S. self-relevance in the world and self-importance. And we part of it, analysts always wondering what does it mean when it's not really as always as we thought, I think Trump somehow and backing off from the region somehow 
demonstrates that point or the, the less of an American era in the world, I think. Um, it is much less than in the past. Let me just make that cautiousness at the beginning or that warning, I would say. Second, similar to what uh, Dina said about Iran is somehow from a Yemen point of view, it's not really much different who's in the White House. Um, first is, let's remember when the Saudi intervention in Yemen started, it actually started during a Democrat uh, administration in 2015, with Biden being the vice president. It wasn't actually a Trump or a new Republican administration. And in fact, the Yemen war was a price of the Iran deal between Biden, Obama, conversation and Zarif. So in a way, it's not really, you know, at least in the, in the short term memory, not much difference. Um, in other ways, obviously, it is different. Um, overall, the folks in Riyadh always feel much much more home whenever there is a Republican in the White House, let alone when there is a businessman like a Trump. Um, it's a language that's much easier for them to understand. Definitely, uh, uh, Biden also made, uh, or the Democratic Party made the commitment to end the American support to the war in Yemen, even if they helped in 2015 launch it. So that's much different for the Saudis. And I think what will also be more decisive in the U.S. election is what happens in the Senate and the Congress. This will be also another, in the U.S. Congress will be another battle for the Saudis. Because somehow, even during Obama-Trump, when they had, when Obama era, when they had some sort of a friend in the White House, the biggest challenge came to the Saudis always uh, from the Senate and from the Congress, whether on JASTA, whether on Yemen's war, whether on Khashoggi's, the biggest pushback have came in that side of the administration overall. Mm, okay. Um, now I have a question for the two of you. And so we already touched on, on the dimension of U.S.-Saudi relations uh, with regards to the war in Yemen. Uh, Farah, you broadened that a bit, but I'd like to push you a bit on that. Um, did Saudi Arabia make a mistake uh, by putting too many eggs in the Trump basket? Did it invest too heavily in its personal relations with Trump, with the Trump White House? If there is a Biden administration, how do you expect uh, uh, that to play out? Will Saudi Arabia pay a bit of a price uh, for having been a bit too close to the U.S.? Or will Biden be kind of held hostage by the perceived importance of the partnership on the American side by, by vested interests in the Pentagon and elsewhere in the perpetuation of that relation. How do you see that play out beyond uh, solely the issue of the war in Yemen, maybe starting with uh, Dina? Of course. Um, I think that from the perspective of Saudi Arabia, and actually you could almost say the same for some of the other Gulf Arab states as well. From their perspective, it doesn't matter who's in power in the U.S. The U.S. is leaving. And they're making, they're, they're figuring out what they're going to do next now as a result of this perceived U.S. disengagement from the region. Now, it doesn't matter that this disengagement hasn't really happened on the ground. It doesn't matter what the U.S. says. It doesn't matter whether it's a Democratic administration that's trying to reassure them or a Republican administration that goes back and forth between, yes, the Gulf Arabs are our best friends, or no, they have to pay for their own security because we're not going to do it. None of this seems to matter anymore because in the minds of the leadership in Saudi Arabia and in some of the neighboring Gulf Arab countries, the U.S. is leaving. So it's, we're now in a, in a situation where they're thinking about, okay, how are we going to deal with this? And I think that Saudi Arabia has put a lot of effort in trying to develop its relationship with the Trump administration. I don't think that it necessarily views this as a sunk cost right now, um, because in some ways, despite being afraid that the U.S. is leaving, there's also a growing assertiveness in the region. And I think that the Saudis are 
you know, one of these assertive countries that who, they, they believe that they're actually going to be okay, that they're um, going to be able to find a way to, to basically make themselves feel more secure. They're going to diversify their security partners, which is what they're trying to do right now. And, um, and ultimately, uh, yes, the U.S. might be leaving the region, but they also can't abandon their friends, the Gulf Arabs, because after all, who is going to help them uh, to face you know, regional threats like Iran or Islamism. Um, so there's, there's this weird confidence and assertiveness that's coupled with this fear of the U.S. leaving the region, which is a little bit of a, a little bit of an oxymoron. But, um, but so I don't think that they, they feel like they put too many eggs just in the Trump administration. I think that they believe that if, uh, they end up facing a Biden administration after the elections, that they'll, that they'll, muddle through, that they'll find a, a way to get by. They know that the environment within the United States, in the domestic scene in the U.S., is broadly becoming anti, pretty strongly anti-Saudi anyway. Um, so it's just a question of managing that uh, and, and making sure that Washington sees it as an indispensable friend in the region, no matter who's in power. All right. Yes, I think um, it's not that the Saudis probably even if let's say they put a lot of they put mistake by putting all of their eggs in one basket, um, which is um, the Trump. The problem is not the problem. I guess the reality is to be accurate is, you know, whether you pay a price for something or an expensive price is very different math or calculus when you sleep in one of the world's, you know, one, one of the world's richest oil areas in the world. You know, when you have that different level of wealth, and ability to influence your math and your calculus is very different, even if you pay a price. If you're able to stay in a throne after such a thing like the Jamal Khashoggi murder, then that's a price, no matter how expensive it is, you didn't really pay the price for it. Because no matter what the price was, it was ultimately something cheap, something you could afford. It's not really a lose for that. So I don't think they did that mistake. Let alone, I think, and what Dina was saying is important is they diversifies their friends even around the world, not just within America. You know, they're in the way India, they're talking to the Chinese. They like the idea they can buy stuff from the Russians and there is no uh, Senate there or Congress to ask them why. So it's actually, uh, uh, their mad, I think, by right now is a bit different from um, that point of view. Now, with, with the Saudis, with, as, as things move forward, as Dean also was saying, is they have increased a, a very good ability to face whatever crisis there is in America, whether that's 9-11 or an Obama administration or any sort of a pressure that's also existing in that part or coming from that part of the world. This is not just because of oil or actually uh, uh, arm deals or just because of this historic relationship and this historic partnership, but in my opinion, because of an even more important element, which is the flow of information, especially information related to counter-terrorism. This makes the relationship between the two countries very uncomfortable sometimes, very untied, goes ups and downs, but still an exceptionally essential level of relationship because it evolves around information, which is the never running out oil and they're never running out of influence or level or of leverage any time at any stage, especially for a country like the United States. I'd like to push back uh, just a bit on, on, before moving to the next question, to both of you, uh, maybe again starting with uh, Dina. You talk about the U.S. withdrawal from the region. You talk about how actors in the region are adjusting to that. Farah made a lot of references to that too. 
Um, there's a lot of talk in the media about the U.S. withdrawal from the region, Western media, but also in, in regional media in the Middle East. But the U.S. is still very strongly present in the Middle East. It still has a massive network of bases in the Persian Gulf, uh, in Gulf countries, around elsewhere, relationships with Egypt and Israel, and, and you know, the, the list goes on. So the U.S. is not gone from the Middle East. Uh, so can I, can I ask you to, to tell us a bit about how you see the American presence in the region evolving, how it would differ under a President Biden or a President Trump? Both of them probably want to limit that presence in the region for different reasons and in a different way. Um, but where do you see that heading maybe a bit more uh, precisely? Absolutely. You're absolutely spot on. I mean, um, the U.S. has been at pains to explain to its Gulf Arab friends in the region that that they are there, that they have been behind them, um, you know, for decades now. The, they have been selling weapons to them and continue to sell weapons to them at the moment, despite some of the hiccups again domestically in the U.S. with getting some of these weapon sales through uh, Congress. But um, but again, it just it doesn't matter. The perception is that it's leaving, whether that's true or not. Um, seems to be not that important anymore at the moment because the perception really is that they're they're packing up and they're leaving. And the perception is that it's pretty imminent. Um, and I think more important than that, the, the belief is that the U.S. is not reliable anymore. And I think that's what really matters. The Gulf Arabs have always relied on the Americans for their security. They felt safe because the Americans have been at pains to show that they're there to keep them safe against the Iraqis, against the Iranians. Um, and today, they just don't see the U.S. as reliable. Now, I think that the, if, you, if you talk to Americans, they see it very differently. They're like, we're, we're there, we're present in the region, our troops are in the region. As you outlined, we have bases throughout the region. We are not in any way interested in removing those perhaps scaling it down somewhat, but even then, it doesn't seem to be a general scale down, but rather a shifting of troop numbers to different locations in the region. Um, so the commitment seems to be there. But interestingly, I think the political commitment or the psychological commitment is not the same as it was a few years ago. And again, when you speak to US officials, they'll deny that. They'll say, no, clearly our troop presence shows that we are committed. But I think that if there is some exhaustion with the Middle East, um, there is a lot going on at the moment in the world. There's a lot going on domestically in the United States. And so it's only natural that, the, that a region like the Middle East, which is frankly far away and has been a real drag on US foreign policy for a long time, it's, I think it's normal that there would be a little bit less of a desire to remain as committed politically or as in the game psychologically as they used to be. Um, as you said, I think whether it's a Biden presidency or a Trump, administra a Trump administration, there is a likelihood that um, both of them will want to somewhat scale down their presence while continuing to show that they're committed to the region. Um, but I think it will be for different reasons. Uh, not that it matters because ultimately the result will be the same. The perception that they're leaving is going to remain. And there is more, I think also, this probably one can partially at least understand the, uh, I would say the run to Israel by Bahrain and UAE is for the belief there might be also some sort of a new regional, even a closer protector from Iran or even from Saudi than the United States of America. 
that's another element. I think there is that sense of feeling where security of the Gulf is being outsourced more to the region than in the past. And I think that's somehow more obvious. The other thing is also, no matter how many times the Gulf was, or the US was a presence in the region or in the Gulf, right now it's specifically in the Gulf, presence more as a firefighter between the Gulf itself, rather than in the former past, which was, there was something called the Gulf, and then there was, you know, Saddam, let's say, attacking Kuwait, or there was some sort of a larger enemy that was with them coordinating. Now it's a bit of a different game in the set of mind, I think, of the Gulf and of the region overall, um, and about that perception of the American relevance overall, whether that, again, you know, for the first time also, whether you look to Turkey or Syria or Russia, more and more countries are acting on their own with much less of a coordination with the United States. Whether that's in Yemen, whether that's in Iraq, whether that's in Syria, or whether that's in Lebanon. If you look even to Lebanon at the moment, what you see is almost a clash between Macron and the Americans actually, saying you're screwing it up for international framework. This hasn't really been the case in the past, but even within the P5 or at least within the Western P5. So there is, you know, you got pandemias, you got Trump, you got much more larger issues the world is facing, whether that's the West, you have a Brexit, another even more important issues that the Westerns themselves are facing right now. All of this kind of, you know, makes not just the power centers, but even the public opinion of uh, in, the, in this part of the world, following the news in the West as a terrible region, just as much as this part of the world, as a terrible region, you know, and this is also a different even in the public opinion. You look to British, for example, or Britain, from a power point of view in the region or in the Gulf specifically, they see it more terrible, but they actually see it as a closer friend than the Americans by now, especially with the Brexit and that it's further from the EU, further from these international frameworks. So it is a moment we are seeing, I think, where the perceptions in the region are being redefined, whether countries' perceptions, regimes' perceptions, people's perceptions. And this perception is not just about the West, but about everything, about themselves, about each other, about how power changes, and about who matters, but most importantly, who doesn't, or who matters less today, and that used to matter in the, in the, that used to matter in the past. And these are things, especially with the speed of flow of information, and the proxy uh, wars going in, in the region all the way to Libya and all the way to the struggle happening even with the Chinese in the, in the heart of Africa and the Silk Road is somehow, uh, uh, I would say, con contributing to this larger, not just Western, but also specifically American self-isolation era in the region. That, that issue of, of the gap or the growing gap between perception and reality of, of the American presence in the region, of American interests, of American actions in the region, uh, that gap and the impact that that gap has on other states, other actors' actions is, is a really interesting one. And I find one that, that is uh, poorly understood, but I think the two of you are, are right to highlight and that in the next few years for analysts will be a really important area to, to better understand because studying perceptions is, is, is hard, right? And studying the impact of perceptions on actions is very complicated, but, but I think you're right to argue that it's uh, hugely important right now. So moving on to two uh, slightly more specific topics for our last two uh, questions uh, for, for, for this podcast. First of all, the UAE. 
Uh, Dina, you study the UAE uh, uh, very much. Uh, the U.S. has become very close to the UAE, as we know. Can you give us just a bit of background on this partnership? How valuable is it to both countries? And how do you see it evolve in the next few years, especially given everything that you've just said uh, in our previous questions? So the relationship between the U.S. and the UAE is an important one. Um, and while... Uh, I'm tempted to say it's more important for the UAE than it is for the U.S., and, and to a certain extent it, that will be right. Um, it is still an important one for the United States because the UAE really does seem to be the only uh, strong, tough, um, you know, non-religious power in the region that, uh, that uh, the United States can really work with closely, particularly in the post-Khashoggi world um, that we're in at the moment. So it's an important relationship. It's one that spans many decades. It's one that the UAE has put considerable effort into developing. Uh, it's invested uh, economically, politically, militarily, culturally um, in, in showing its worth to the United States. Uh, it was very poorly perceived, I think, for a while in Washington. And so again, it's invested a lot of effort into ensuring that that the, the political community in DC views it better, sees it as a, as a worthwhile partner in the region. And to a certain extent, it succeeded. Um, but, uh, but I think that uh, given what's going on in the region at the moment, given uh, the new Emirati assertiveness that we're seeing in the region and its willingness to act on its own, sometimes even without notifying the Americans of what they're doing, uh, I think little by little, we're gonna find ourselves in a situation where the US um, might either stand in opposition to what the UAE wants or might try to prevent the UAE from doing what it wants to do. Uh, and so you might end up with a little bit of a clash of, of wills between, uh, between these two countries. But it's certainly a very important relationship. The um, Emiratis still depend quite significantly on the Americans for their security and their well-being, even though they've invested a lot of effort since uh, particularly, I would argue, since after the Arab Spring in, in again, um, building relationships with other partners, both inside the region and outside the region, in giving it new options, um, also in increasing its self-sufficiency in a range of issues in its foreign policy, in building some of its domestic capabilities so that it can, you know, it has the capabilities and the capacity to pursue the foreign policy that it wants to pursue. So it is doing all these things, but it also knows that, for example, developing self-sufficiency is something that's a very long-term goal. And it's not going to be able to do that if it doesn't have partners that are willing to help it ensure its security for the moment, which is where the U.S. continues to come in. And it knows that ultimately, at the moment, who else is it really going to count on other than the U.S.? Um, it is turning to China. It is talking to other big powers. But none of these countries are known for being willing to really put their... Uh, put themselves on the line to defend their partners. And the Emiratis know that. Um, so again, they see that the UNET, that they, or at least they perceive that the United States wants to leave the region. Um, they understand this to be their truth. And so they're reacting as a result of that. Um, but they also know that right now they don't really have that many other options. And so it's quite important to ensure that the US continues to view it as a reliable partner in the region. Thank you. Uh, that's, that's useful, especially in terms of what, what we discussed uh, in, in previous questions. So last question to uh, Farah. 
Uh, we've talked about the U.S. and uh, the war in Yemen in terms of its relation with Saudi Arabia, but I'd like you to go a bit further in telling us about the U.S. role in the war in Yemen. Um, we've seen, for example, media reports recently that the U.S. may want to list the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. Um, do you think that might happen? Would that be a good idea? Uh, and, and more broadly, can the U.S. play a role in an eventual peace process in Yemen uh, at some point? I think the quite odd thing or the quite kind of uh, 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 complexity when it comes to the U.S. policy on Yemen, there isn't, I think, a U.S. policy in Yemen because they don't really have a Yemen policy. There is a Saudi policy, there is Iran, there is oil, there is uh, um, Qaeda policy, there is a lot of policies that always factors Yemen in, but it's not a Yemen policy. You would struggle around D.C., to actually meet more than a handful of people who work in Yemen full-time um, across all departments. Um, they usually, and this is actually most of the Western countries, they work on Yemen as part of many, many other countries. So that is a larger issue. Now, when it comes specifically to Yemen, the U.S. have, and I think the region, but Yemen specifically, the U.S. has bought itself in this really odd self-quarantine you know, politically positioned in a room, not COVID free, but actually full of COVID in, in the sense, and it has no control over it. And it left all of the choices around it. What does that exactly mean? So it's supporting the Saudis, but it's not really much directly involved in the Yemen war. So it's somehow supporting something, part of a room that it has no control over what's around it. It just knows that it's providing it with resources, with water, with locations, with intelligence, with things. But it is really, and, and the virus is around it, but it's just saying it's not my fault, it's not my hand. Um, and that's where it is as a policy right now for the last five years. There were a few moments where the Yemen was very close to peace because of U.S. rather than you know, uh, uh, misintervention, but actually it was good intervention. But it was too late. It was the last few days of John Kerry in the, in the State Department and of Obama time. We had by that time something called the Kerry Initiative. It was based on the Kuwait negotiations. It was, you know, run down in, in Masqat, where the Houthis, Kerry himself met um, uh, uh, with the Houthis in Masqat. And we were very close to actually reaching a peace process in Yemen. And believe it or not, this was outside the UN framework, which is also another reason when the UN wants to be part of the solution, it actually can, even in any possible framework. But that week, you know, it was the last the problem that happened, obviously, none of us factored in, not even uh, a Western public opinion polling, so that Hillary Clinton did not win. But that was because it was around the same time that they planned that this will be Kerry initiative. He will, you know, push for peace in Yemen and then Hillary will pick it forward. That didn't happen, unfortunately, after that. There might be um, a renewal of that. I think that is actually very possibility. Um, and that there is also the thing that if, if Biden comes into the White House, he will have a lot of reference, not just on Yemen, but also on the region to build on. That's from a peace point of view. That might be the difference. But I think, you know, all of this, not just on Yemen war or in Saudi, but overall on the region is, um, let's, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 wait until November 3rd, do what Mike Pence did, pray that America doesn't go into a civil war. And I think after that, we will see how it goes, because that's a still a huge puzzling question also, even on the perception about the U.S. in the region this time. No one has ever been able to unproduct as much as this the destiny and the future of a country. They relied so much on its ability to predict, which is the United States of America. And that's just another factor where everyone 
is basically just waiting and praying one way or the other for November 3rd. And I think by after that, it will be clear, especially if what's happening domestically in the United States, how much it actually can and will be able to do anything on the region, not just on Yemen. Well, uh, thank you very much to the two of you. The analogy between U.S. policy in Yemen and a self-quarantine is a very good way to finish this off. So I want to thank you very much, the two of you, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to do this. Uh, I hope that we get to see each other in person uh, again at some point, hopefully in 2021, uh, if, if uh, the gods allow it. Absolutely. Thank, thank you for having us. Thank you. Okay, and have a, have a great day. You too. Thanks.